Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's Word. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. We are returning now after a short break, uh, the Easter break, returning to our exposition of Paul's epistle, epistle to the Ephesians. We have worked through the first three chapters, and we have three chapters to go. The first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians have powerfully laid out the key doctrines of the Christian faith. This is not only the Apostle's usual method to begin with doctrine, but it's really a good method for us to follow in teaching our children and teaching others. Principle first. Application second. Establish the foundation before we start trying to build the building. If we try to skip the foundation, which of course is hard work and in the end is unseen, um, and if we then go straight to trying to build, then of course the building won't stand or it won't stand for all uh, for long if that foundation is weak. However, there are some Christians who spend all their time on the foundation. Sometimes uh, they're the theological wonks. Uh, They just kind of have a hobby. Theology is a hobby of interest. Uh, And and so there's all the focus there. They're fascinated with the engineering details of the Bible. All the cool stuff. All the things that uh, you can find in the doctrine and in the text and in the... All, all the various little particular things, that's, and it is exciting, it is good, it's interesting, but if that's all we have, if that's all we do, then, of course, we've fallen short. Somehow, they never quite get around to building the building. It's possible to know the Scriptures and to miss the point, to know them in one sense. Or as Jesus said to the Sadducees, you do great error not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Or in Paul's words to Timothy regarding some who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The doctrinal foundation, though, exists for the very purpose of building the building, and the building is your Christian life. It is your marriage. It is your family. It is your labor. All of that is the outworking of Your Christian life. That is the building that you're building. To change the metaphor, it is like the root, the branches, and the fruit. Each are necessary, but none are sufficient in themselves. Now, this chapter opens with the word therefore. And therefore, it makes the connection between what we believe. Remember, the first three chapters have dealt primarily with the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And now, we're going to connect that to the practice 
of Christian living. Now these two are intertwined, so we have some practical things we see in the first three chapters. But the emphasis is on the doctrine, on the foundation. And then now we're going to still have some new doctrinal things set before us in the last three chapters. But the focus is now going to be on what we call the practical things. There are always, there's always a result to the kind and quality of the foundation, though, that we have laid. So, for example, if you try to skip doctrine, you say, well, I'm the opposite of that person you were describing earlier who's all interested in the doctrine and the text and those details. I'm not interested in all that. Just give me the practical stuff. Well, the problem is if you skip doctrine and you go straight to the practical living, you'll always get it wrong. You will always end up with an unstable Christian life or marriage or family. Later in chapter 4, Paul is going to talk about those who are little children who are tossed by every wind of doctrine, everything that comes along. They're unstable. Every wave that comes along knocks them back. It will, in that kind of world where you've not paid attention to doctrine, where you don't really know the doctrines of the faith, In that case, you will be sort of Christian, but not soundly Christian. And if you never leave the doctrine and you start the building, you'll be like the person Jesus described in Luke 14. He says, for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether or not he has enough to finish? It's not enough to lay the foundation. You have to finish the project lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Of course, doctrine must always come first. That's the nature of a foundation. Then and only then is it safe to build. So Paul now shifts to emphasize what difference our doctrine should make in our lives. He says, endeavoring, uh, the goal of this, this whole chapter is going to be that we're endeavoring to uh, keep the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he's going to talk about how we together as God's people do this. But he begins with the, here in this first verse with the, the word worthy, which carries two basic ideas. He wants us to live worthy lives. He wants us to live lives that are worthy of the call with which we have been called. So the first idea that's contained in the word worthy is that of balance or of an equal weight. If you think of a traditional scale, that there's a a balance in our lives that requires both doctrine or truth and practice. To focus on one or the other, as we pointed out, is to, or to exclude or neglect one or the other, leads to an unbalanced and an unworthy Christian life. Sticking with our building metaphor, we end up then with an unsound and an uns- or an unsafe building. And so, we must be careful builders who give balance or worthy attention to the task that we've been called to. And the second idea contained in the word worthy is that of being lovely or attractive. This isn't simply some shack or hay barn that we're building. 
The King James translates this word in Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. As it adorns the gospel. And so there's a similar idea here to the idea of balance. Perhaps we could think of it as clothing with matching accessories or that the shirt and the pants match. Um, I was at the ships the other day and the girls came out, or one or two of them did, and it was funny. And the first statement I think Rachel made was, guess who dressed themselves today? Well, of course, we saw that in her as a little girl as well. Children are not always good at that. Sometimes we have to say no, and frankly, neither are husbands. And uh, uh, sometimes you have to say, no, you can't wear that. Those don't go together. Well, they're both pink. You know, stripes and plaids and polka dots and, and all of that. So we need some help to make sure these things match, that they go together. And some people are better at that than others. But there should be no clash between our doctrine and our practice. He says he believes God is sovereign, but look at how he's acting over here. He says he believes and trusts in Christ for his whole salvation. He, he says that, but now look at him over here engaged in works or fretting about things or not trusting God. So there are all kinds of imbalances in our lives between what we say we believe and what we actually live. And of course, when we do, that is the opposite of being attractive. That would be ugly. Beauty is the objective. Paul writes to Titus telling him to exhort others to adorn the gospel of the Savior in all things. Well, that's a series of sermons right there. Adorn the gospel, excuse me, adorn the doctrine of, of God our Savior in all things. In all your relationships, in all your work, in your words, in how you act, in what you do, and how you give, and all those things. We want people to admire and desire Christ and His gospel. And so, they need to both hear and see the good news. They may say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but of course they want to see a life that matches that, but they also ought to be able to just look and know what you believe. In fact, you know that that's true anyway. If you had a choice between having somebody tell you what they believe or somebody show you what they believe, which one do you believe the most about them? What they say or what they do? It's what they do. Now, this worthy or balanced life is what we're called to. This is our vocation. Everything else, our jobs, going to school, play, everything else in our lives is to come under our vocation, which is our calling. Because we're to do all of that to His glory. We're to do all of that in light of this calling. We have been called out of the world and into the church. Ecclesia is... The, the word church means the called out once. We've been called out of darkness into light. And so these are dramatic descriptions of what has happened to us in Christ. 
There's a general call, of course, that goes out to all men. As Paul says, all men everywhere are called to repentance. But, of course, not all respond. And so, in keeping with how Paul works here, I'm going to take a parenthetical uh, moment here in the sermon and give you a little doctrine. The doctrine of effectual calling. Effectual calling is something quite different. I doubt seriously that the trumpet blast around the walls of Jericho are what actually brought the walls down. They're the means God used, but I believe that the power of God is what brought the walls down. And God used those trumpets almost symbolically there. I believe that when the words of Ezekiel came forth to speak to the valley of dry bones, it wasn't the words of Ezekiel, but the power of God attached to those words. One passage, one of the passages that many find disturbing, and I don't know about you, actually I think I do, I find a lot of the Bible disturbing. It bothers me. It picks on me. It exposes me. I don't like it. At least not initially. But I like what it eventually does after it's through picking on me. But one of the passages people find disturbing is found in Romans, the ninth chapter. I remember one occasion many years ago in a large, fairly large Sunday school class, probably about 15 or 20 young uh, or single adults, and I don't remember the context of everything, but I simply read what I'm about to read to you. Romans 9. Didn't make a comment on it, didn't lead into it, just read it. And a young woman got up, slammed her Bible closed, and stormed out of the room and said, I don't believe that. Well, she was being honest. It's unsettling. Uh, to the person, this passage that I'm going to read is unsettling to the person who wants to be in charge of their own destiny. But it's a comfort to the person who knows that they are helpless without the work of a sovereign, all-powerful God. We're tempted, when we read a passage like this, to demand an explanation from God, but the Apostle Paul, anticipating that natural demand, proceeds to offer no explanation at all. Rather, he points only to the sovereign mercy of God upon, whose, upon those who deserved his wrath. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair? Paul, certainly not. If I can paraphrase, Paul was saying, you know what, there's a lot of things I don't know, but one thing I know, God's not unrighteous. He's not unjust. That I know. And so whatever else I don't know in this, what we're about to read, I do know that. That's the bottom line. That's the foundation. There's the doctrine. That's something I can stand on with certainty, even if I can't answer all the other details. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, this is the disturbing part, it does not depend on him who wills, or nor on him who runs, but on God 
who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now here's Paul's anticipation. Wait a minute. God, you owe me an answer. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, which he would have been just, right, to take all of humanity and just wipe us out? in his judgment, to, to, to cast us away from him, to separate us from him? What if he, in his, he, while wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called... Not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. That's the calling. The mercy of God calling. The I didn't deserve it calling. The I was headed to hell calling and he grabs me and pulls me back calling. That calling. We are left only to praise him for so great a salvation. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Calling comes before justification, before we're saved. Salvation is 100% God and 0% me. We're the objects of salvation, not the causes and not even the helpers. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. We are called to believe. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father, excuse me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you recall the story of the first convert in Europe as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles? And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where Prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia, uh, she heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. If God had not opened Lydia's heart, she would not have received the word. 
And Paul has already told the Ephesians this in chapter 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And again in verse 5, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Dead people can't make themselves alive. On Palm Sunday, we read the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, who had died and had already begun to decompose. And Jesus called this dead man to come forth. And guess what? He came forth. He didn't have to debate it or argue it or think about it. He just did it. Now that's effectual calling. Like his words, let there be light, and his words come forth. The power is in his call. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is what Paul is arguing for in Ephesians 4. We have been called to show forth these things. We do this by applying the knowledge of the doctrine that we have. In other words, the doctrine is what the Bible teaches us about God, about man, about sin, about life, about death, and so forth. And if we don't know the teaching of the Bible, we can't live lives that are worthy of our calling. Let me give you an example. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Have you applied this? So in all of your difficulties, in all of your problems, in all of your trials, challenges, you self-consciously apply the fact that everything you need is available to you. Or the next verse, Ephesians 1.4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He didn't call you to go to heaven. He called you to be holy and without blame before Him in love. Let's take one more, verse 5. Chapter 1, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that teaches us that we have been made family members. We've been made members of the household of God. What does that mean when it comes to how we live now? Does your life reflect well upon your Father? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, the family honor resides with you. Now, under what conditions does this call to walk in a worthy manner take place? How do we, like Lazarus, get out of the grave and get seated with Christ in the heavenly places? This seems impossible. What can a dead man do? Well, first, let me talk about your contribution to salvation. I'd like you to go through your house, your closets, your garage, your storage rooms, and I'd like you to gather up every sin you can find, past and present, 
and I want you to put them in a bag. You're going to need a large, heavy-duty bag. In fact, you're going to need several of those bags. And I want you to take off all your dirty clothes and stuff them in there as well. And don't forget that your righteousnesses, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. So go ahead and put those in there too. Don't forget anything. Load them all up and drag them with you and come before God and present them to Him. Now that is your contribution to salvation. Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There you are with your bags, naked before God. He calls us, though, by His free grace, His sheer, ill-deserved favor through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We are His workmanship. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We bring Him all of our sins. We present them or confess them. And He forgives them and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And He does all of this in spite of us, not because of us. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and a bride adorns herself with jewels, God's going to dress you. I have this quote recently, quotation from Robert Capon. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the Gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super-spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. Our salvation is by the blood of Christ, which cleanses from all sin. I know it sounds too good to be true. But Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. He takes those big bags of sin and He sends them out to the edge of the universe and He throws them away. 
For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is, excuse me, from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Now you know why this is called good news. Peter says, we know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and spot. In the very first paragraph on the first page of Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he pens these lines. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place, or stopped, where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden on his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and he trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? Later on in the story, we read this description. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, even with the cross, his burden loosed off his shoulders, fell from off his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And I saw it no more. So, back to our walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called. When sin comes and tempts you, like it does every week, if not every day, or when you feel like you just can't go on with the Christian life, or that living the Christian life is just too hard, I want you to remember the price that was paid for your deliverance. Jesus gave his life so we could be rescued from death and so that we might become holy. I'm going to read an extended portion of Scripture here, Romans 8, 1 through 11. Just listen fresh. There is now, therefore, let's just you bow your heads and pray a minute.
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Amen. Early this morning, um, Nicole sent me a text with a photo of a page from Ted Tripp's devotional book, Morning Mercies. I wanted to write her back and ask her why she was up so early, but I was up that early too. So, um, But it, she said it was a good reminder of why we choose obedience over giving in to temptations. She didn't know what I was preaching on today, but I told her I was going to include it in today's sermon. And we'll uh, begin to wrap up here. Here's what he said, and this based on, is a commentary on Ephesians 1, and so it fits perfectly because Paul is giving us a therefore that feeds out of Ephesians 1. He says, your obedience is never to be done in the hope that you will get something, but rather in recognition of what you've already been given. So here's the humbling and comforting truth of the gospel. Your obedience doesn't initiate anything. Your obedience and mine only occur because God initiated a redemptive process that resulted in our forgiveness and our transformation. We don't obey to get his favor. We obey because his favor has fallen on us and transformed our hearts, giving us the willingness and power to obey God. God's work of rescue and forgiveness didn't begin just before you first believed. It didn't begin just before you were born. It began before the world was born. He placed his grace on you and wrote your story in such a way that at a certain point in time, you would hear the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe. His love for you is never a result of your character. It is a clear demonstration of his. He granted you and me what we never could have deserved Our new life is his choice, his gift. This means that if you obey him for a thousand years, you will have no more of his favor. 
than when you first believed. Now that is truly grace. But you say, I'm too weak. Then read your Bible some more and remember what Paul has already told us concerning the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. And the fact that we must, quote, be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, or as he writes in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, but I just can't. You're right, you can't, but he can't. And has. And will. Paul is literally a... I want to close with this idea. I think it's powerful. Paul is literally a prisoner when he writes these things. But he also recognizes that that even his prisoner status is the Lord's doing such that he describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He understood what he wants us to understand, that no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what our circumstances, we have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We're exactly where he wants us right now, and he's calling us to live like Christians right now, not tomorrow. Not when things get better. Right now. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We don't get to live any way we want to. We too are prisoners of the Lord. We are his bondservants. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. Let's pray. Father, when we contemplate even for a moment the grace that you have lavished upon us, the mercy that you have shown us, and the loving kindness that you have extended to us, we cannot help but feel overwhelmed and flooded with joy and gratitude. Deep thoughts of what you have done for us in Christ make us detest our sins and drive us to repent and to live lives worthy of the calling with which we have been called And yet our thought of you and our salvation so easily wanes and fades and we grow dull. And when we do, we also fail to adorn the gospel. Help us to see. Help us to stay focused and to remember. And may our lives be pictures of balance and stability and harmony between doctrine and life. And may those around us both see and hear the good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, 
being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice the sequence here. You have to first be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding before you can walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Each week we come, we sit, we listen, but it's critical that we become actual doers of the word. I'm reminded of what God said regarding his people through the prophet Ezekiel, and this should be a warning He says to Ezekiel, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, every one saying to his brother, Please come and hear what the word is uh, that comes from the Lord. And so they come to you as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. Each week after we have sat under the preaching of the word, we conclude by coming to the Lord's table where we eat and where we drink and where we pledge ourselves to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So as you partake of the Lord's body and blood today, I, like Paul, pray for you. Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Amen. Give us grace, O Lord, to maintain a constant battle with all evil. May we ourselves avoid every temptation to it, and may we endeavor, according to our opportunities and ability, to persuade others to do the same. Help us to keep the greatest distance from those places where we might fall and die. O Lord, enable us thereby to show that we are Christians not only in, with our words, but indeed with our lives. May we be strict and self-denying, and yet kind and liberal to others, and candid and charitable and full of pity and grace. Teach us to understand your abounding grace in the gospel, that we may ourselves abound in every work of goodness and charity. Enable us to find favor in the sight of those around us, and especially of those who are nearest to us, so that we might be able to show them the beauty of the gospel and speak to them and see them benefit from that work of the gospel. Bless us, O Lord, in these Christian purposes, for from you alone come the strength to serve you, and to you we continually look up. Hear us, we pray, 
and grant us the help of the Holy Spirit that we may live this coming week according to these our prayers, and that all the fruits of holiness may abound in us. Grant us today rest and delight in you and in one another now as we gather around tables to eat. Again, we ask every blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen.